Welcome back, everyone, to Cross the Crown, episode 92. I know that's correct because I just checked it. Um, Josh Copen, and in case you can't tell, I'm coming to you from, for those who are watching, from a different location, parts unknown, as they like to say. Uh, no, I'm in my home state of West Virginia. I don't know if you can see the represent the colors here, the flying uh, WV, and Doug is still in Colorado, which is beautiful as well. But it's not uh, almost heaven, as John Denver called it. It's Rocky Mountain High but it's not almost heaven. Uh, Doug is, of course, our pastor friend, our uh, university, uh, our New Covenant School of Theology president, author, ministry director, husband, father, and that's why we ask him everything. And he is our Bible genie. And you just shake him or our eight ball, and you just shake him and answers come out. It's really great. Some will come out, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> As my, my family has always said, if you don't know, you are confidently loudly wrong in your answer. And I feel that's uh, a shot at me, nevertheless. All right, Doug. So I didn't want to forget this because we had a question, and I think it's a really good question on the YouTube page on the last episode. And so what is your take on Theophanies being Christophanies? And they quoted John 1, but I thought we could expand that. Was is Jesus pre-incarnate who walked with Adam? Is it Jesus who is speaking with Moses? Big one is was Melchizedek a Christophany, um, but just some of those was it Jesus who talked to Abraham and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah those kind of things. So, what's your take on Christophanies? Um, since we believe Jesus is God incarnate, God in human form, is it fair to call them Christophanies? And which ones are and which ones aren't? So, go ahead answer the great uh, two thousand year old question. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Great biblical question. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, Melchizedek is not a uh, Christophany. We can dig into that if you want yep. to later. Um, I lean toward the idea that uh, the others uh, are that the visible representation of God on earth is the second person of the Trinity. Now, I don't know that we can prove that. Well, I'd say we can't prove that uh, definitively. But uh, we know, for instance, that Isaiah 6, that Isaiah's vision, when he says, I see the Lord seated on the throne, uh, the smoke fills the temple and all that, we know that is Christ because John tells us that. Is it uh, John 11 or 12? I forget now, where he talked about Isaiah seeing his glory and the his there clearly is referring to Christ, not to Yahweh, not to who we would call the Father. So at least in that instance, the Lord that we see is uh, is the second person. Also, you think of Psalm 110, which is repeated more often than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. So there, hundreds of years of, uh, prior to Christ, David understands there's Yahweh, the Lord, and then there's another Lord. David has a second Lord, that is, uh, that's the second person Trinity. Now that's not a Christophany, but it's just, it's a, it's awareness that the Lord Jesus Christ is known in the old Testament as Lord. So because he is the incarnation of Christ, because he is the image of Christ, uh, I'm sorry, of the father and the image of the father, it makes sense to me that he's the one people saw. In fact, I go so far as to say, I think that God we're going to see for all eternity is the second person. Uh, I base that on because, you know, the scripture says over and over again, no one has seen the Father, no one has seen God, uh, yet we've seen Christ. 
And that does seem to be why he came is to, to join us as the God man. So it makes sense to me. You look at revelation, you've got the Lord on his throne. And then a little bit later, you have the lamb and we know that God, Jesus is not a lamb. So we're not looking for a four-legged creature, but that's representing something. And all that played out. It seems to me that it makes sense that we're going to see Jesus forever. I don't know. I'm not going to be disappointed either way, right? If, if we see the right. Father, praise the Lord. If we see just the Son, we're not going to be disappointed, but I kind of go that way. You're not the only person I've heard say that, especially mm -hmm. as our reference. So it's not like it's this, your your take on uh, uh, the Galatians uh, is <laughs> mm -hmm. a little bit more obscure. No, and, and I think, so based on that and what the, we know the disciples even until the Holy Spirit came and, and, and filled them and, and the first and acts and all that, they were still looking for a human representative to be their king. So in a sense, do you think they had an idea of a, I don't want to say Christophany because that wouldn't have been their thought, but a Christophany, if you will, of a person, a God man representing them being their king here? Or did they think God himself, not as they saw Christ, but literal God is going to come down and be their, their, their Messiah? Like, do you think they had a sense of a human representative at all? Old Testament disciples, I think they probably had mostly a human representative. Um, they seemed pretty shocked when the Messiah shows up and they begin to see that he is the Messiah. And then they begin to realize, oh, this is the son of God, not just in name. You know, angels mm -hmm. are called sons of God. David, the kings were called sons of God. But whoa, no, this guy is divine. He's doing things only God can do. That shocked them. So I don't think they were looking for God incarnate, which they should have been. Isaiah 9, right? We sing this every year at Christmas. He will be called. The one who's coming will be called everlasting father, which is fascinating. The son, a son will be given and he will be called everlasting father. He will be called almighty God. So they should have put that together. They didn't. They seem shocked that this man who's the Messiah is also God. You know, it's amazing. I always think about this, like the scripture being self-fulfilling and self-authoritating, if you will, is you couldn't write a book with the Old Testament, the 300 and some prophecies, and then read the New Testament and go, wow, they managed to like, hmm. remember all of them and fulfill them like humans just making that up? Like, no, like just look at it and realize there's a pattern in understanding what God is doing and how Christ fulfills all of it. Like it, hmm. to me, that is proof that there's an, an evidentiary or a classical argument, not a presuppositional argument, if you will, that the Bible is self-attesting. It is what it is, said it is because of just the sheer mathematical impossibility that they would remember mm -hmm. to fulfill all those prophecies in Jesus's story. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you think about some of the great works like Lord of the Rings, right? You pull all those things together right. and think, oh, what a masterful story. And then that times a million mm -hmm. plus is what, what God did in bringing Jesus about. And yeah, you just can't stay, you can't do anything but sit in awe and say, wow, God is, is beyond my comprehension. Yeah. And um, just the comfort we should take in that. And then there are some, some passages where you're like, well, he said he shall come from Nazareth. That's nowhere in the old Testament. What do we do with that? Um, mm -hmm. Is that in the Apocrypha? I've always wanted to ask that. What do we do with that passage that uh, said he will come from Nazareth? That's nowhere in the old Testament. So uh, what do you do with that one? Since I'm on that question. 
Next question. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. No idea. I do want to address Melchizedek, though. Yeah. No, yeah, I, don't, I don't mean to blow you off. I'm no, just no, saying no. I, I don't know. That is mm-hmm. that is a hard one, and I've re- mm-hmm. read a few different uh, answers, and yeah, makes sense, but none of them are conclusive. Yeah, I'm with you on Melchizedek, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So Melchizedek, it, it, you know, if we should we take a moment and look at it? Sure. Um, so we go into the New Testament in Hebrew or the uh, in Genesis or yeah Genesis? No, doing? Hebrews. Okay. So the uh, the author here, whoever he is, uh, probably not Apollos. Isn't that who you think it is? I think it's Apollos. Um, That's just me. Yeah, it so it's probably five? not Apollos. But yeah, chapter five, he begins okay. to talk about Melchizedek. And then he interrupts himself and says, but I can't talk about Melchizedek because you all are babes in the Lord. You, you should be eating meat, but you can't mm-hmm. eat milk. And he gives the hard things in chapter six. Then he comes back in chapter seven to Melchizedek. And here's what it says, chapter seven, verse one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth part of the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, that's what the word Melchizedek means in uh, in Hebrew, Zedek is king, Melchizedek would be the, uh, the righteous part, so he's the king of righteousness, just as a interpretation of the literal meaning of his name and he's also king of salem which is king of peace the uh the hebrew word there is shalom we mm-hmm. probably know that shalom means peace it means blessing prosperity so he because he's the king of salem which i believe is probably later going to be called jerusalem even though some people don't think that's what it is i think it is so he's the king of peace he's the king of salem king of righteousness that's melchizedek Without father, mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. All right. So the flow of his argument is so, so the writer does say he doesn't have genealogy, doesn't have mother or father. But in the flow of the argument, I think the key is there in verse three, made like the son of God. So what what the writer is doing is setting up Jesus as a greater high priest than Aaron and the sons of Aaron. Jesus wouldn't qualify to be a priest under the old covenant because he was born in the wrong family. He was not of the tribe of Levi, which all priests had to be. And he wasn't a descendant of Aaron, which high priests had to be. He was of Judah. So he doesn't qualify. He can't be a priest. And yet this, this writer is saying he's of a higher priestly order than even Levi and Aaron because Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, he's going to go on and say. Well, how is that possible? Because Levi came way later than Melchizedek. Well, Levi was in the loins of his father, who was in the loins of his father, who was in the loins of his father, going back to Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So he's using figurative language. He's not really saying that Levi existed in Abraham. That, that, that's, that's just an absurdity. Mm-hmm. No, but he's saying as the story plays out, we know that Levi was uh, uh, inferior to Father Abraham, and Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. So he's using a lot of metaphorical type illustrative language here in order to say Melchizedek was a, a type, and a, he, he was the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's the founder of this new priestly order, or this superior priestly order, he's saying, look, he's like the Son of God. As you read the story uh, of Melchizedek, so if you're cruising along Genesis, you've got Genesis chapter 12, that's the calling of Abraham. 
You've got 13, some of the stuff going on between Abraham and some of the other kings and such. And then 14, kind of out of nowhere, after Abraham defeats those kings, out of nowhere comes this guy named Melchizedek. We have no clue. He just pops up. <laughs> Abraham pays him tithes. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then he pops away. And you never hear from him again until Psalm 110. And David says, I swear to you, speaking of the Messiah, you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's it. That's all we got. We have no genealogy. Genesis is a book of genealogies. All the important people have genealogies. Melchizedek doesn't. I think that's what the author is doing, is saying he's like the Son of God. His priesthood is superior to uh, Levi and Aaron. He pops in, no genealogy, no beginning and end in the story, which is... Uh, an illustration, a metaphor, preparation for this one who also has no beginning and end, only not just a story, but it's it's true of him. So that's what makes most sense to me. I Because he says he's like the son of God, it's really hard for me to say he is the son of God. So I don't think this is a Christophany. Yeah. And um, again, sometimes logical arguments, there can be counter logical arguments, but one is like, here's this king who's just around forever. He never dies. People don't bring that up and talk about that throughout history too. So there is mm -hmm. that side of the, the non-biblical argument, uh, if you will. It is uh, crazy with scripture to think about just, uh, this was brought up at the conference I was at this week, just thinking about Christ as being the, the better Adam, the final Adam, um, why we ha may needed Christophanes to come along and still carry out God's plan or, or wh whatever God's purposes were. But Christ ultimately, you have Adam in this, perfect garden, had everything he wanted, commune and talk with God. And then Christ in the wilderness, hungry in the middle of nowhere, defeats mm -hmm. Satan. And I just thought, how did I never see that before? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. how did I never see that before that this, that, that even more as how he's able to empathize with us or sympathize with us, if you will. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, cause we were talking about Hebrews is that scenario right there. Him at his most weak beside the cross physically, hasn't eaten in 40 days, is in the middle of nowhere, and is able to defeat Satan just solely on God's word and why we need to be just knee deep in God's word as much as possible. And he was lonely. Yeah. He was out there by himself. Mm -hmm. uh, Adam had a great companion, but Jesus is out there lonely. We know we, we make a lot of bad decisions when we're lonely and tired and hungry and all those things. And then Satan is just letting him have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, it just shows how much greater Jesus is than anyone before, including Adam. And that, that's our King and our savior. Amen. Um, one of the things that we have focused on this podcast has been a couple of weeks, but is manhood and kingship mm -hmm. and what's that looks like. Um, you are a father of a son. I have two girls, but if I have a son, I really want to make sure I bring them up, at least teach them in the ways of the Lord. And by hopefully by God's grace, they come to see and understand it, just not have a head knowledge. I've heard this concern recently from a lot of parents, especially with the culture. And that's one of the things we focus on here is in Vody Vachman, who's very, get your kids out of public school to mess, mm. but talks about the issues that men have in homeschooling is that they do seem to be overtly feminine and have issues there, and it's causing some problems in the church. How do we address that? How do we as fathers raise men when there is, I don't know what the argument is, they need a, other men in their life, they need a social construct, whatever it is, not a dominating mother who's around. I, I don't even know how to relay all that, but how do we address that as fathers to make sure our men grow up 
to be men and strong if we're not letting them participate in this thing that's been common for 200 years in our society or whatever? Yeah, it's a good question uh, and pretty broad. So I'll, you, yeah. know, you know, won't be able to give all the qualifications that might belong here. Um, you know, I look around and think we are among a lot of people in our church who homeschool. And I don't know that I see a significant majority of those boys that are particularly effeminate and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, where I have seen it, I would say it's probably because the dad just isn't involved in the life of, of the son. Um, we certainly miss going back agricultural days, pre-industrial age, that kind of thing. Uh, typically go back 300 years, I would be working with my hands out in the field or something like that. And my son would be out there with me. So he's seeing me watching me day in and day out. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Your son, if he goes to school somewhere, most of his teachers are going to be women. So if he's homeschooled, most of his teaching is going to come from his mom. So it's imperative for husbands or fathers to spend time with sons daily, weekly, and do things uh, that are that are manly, that are that are getting him out there. Sports can be one of them. You know, there's a lot of Christians I think that are kind of down on sports, but uh, I love them for boys. I think it's important for them to uh, face competition, to to learn how to lose well to learn how to win well, to learn how to make mistakes. I mean, I I'll never forget the, the time we were in the championship game. Gabe was just a tyke, I don't know, eight, nine, 10, something like that. And uh, he walks up with a chance to win it all and, and he grouted out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was watching to see how does he handle that as his whole world. There was another, another case a couple of years ago, or a couple of years later. Uh, I wasn't there. I was actually doing a funeral that day. I wasn't able to be there, but it was the championship weekend again. And he hadn't done a lot of pitching, but they brought him into pitch apparently. And it sounded like he was just stellar for a few innings and then just lost it. And by the time they finally took him out, you know, he'd given up so many runs based on walks, basically, that uh, that we couldn't recover. Uh, well, you know, how does how does he handle that as well as the years that uh, the team was really good and he made some great plays and everybody's cheering and, you know, he's he's diving and he's making a single handed triple play, all those kind of things. How does he handle winning? How does he handle others, his teammates and the other team and all that? And to be there with him, I coached those teams to, to talk to him before and afterward and all that. That's part of it. Uh, and, and taking him with me when I do this and that and the other thing and, and, and engaging in conversation. You know, we, we talk differently. When I, when I take my girls out on dates and we spend time together or whatever, the conversations we have are very different. But it doesn't mean the guys don't need to talk. We're much more comfortable with silence. So we might sit in the car, not say anything, get to the coffee shop, say some things, sit for a bit, say some things, sit for a bit or whatever. We're comfortable with that, um, which is fine. Don't have to force, you know, verbal, verbal vomiting all the time, that kind of thing. But we got to talk and help them wrestle through things and, and put them in situations where they can fail. That, that may be at the top of the list in my mind, putting our sons in positions where they will fail, which means they tried to do something and then help them say, all right, you failed. Let's get up and, and do it again. I don't know. That's, you know, I, I'm, there's so much to this, but it's, if fathers are not involved, then these boys are only going to be influenced by, by women. Yeah. And I think it's a, a little bit of a, a, a figurative look at the Christian life. We fail forward, right? We're just constantly mm-hmm. moving forward. And some, a lot of times it comes from repentance, which is a step mm-hmm. forward in sanctification. And so uh, as being a man, like, right, like, what is the thing that drives 
like, I know people don't like him that much, but it's probably because he's better looking than 99%. Tom Brady has what six Super Bowls, has played in nine. Like, what strives him to be the best is the fact that he's lost games, right? That famous mm-hmm. quote about Michael Jordan I've missed more shots than I've made, mm-hmm. I've missed more game winning shots than I've made. But what strives me to keep going was because of those failures, you know, mm-hmm. and you, you kind of see that common. Well, I mean, even from a worldly perspective, those who are the most successful from a worldly standpoint are ones who have failed more than they succeeded. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at uh, Steve Jobs, Apple, he like he was booted from the board in like the 80s or mm-hmm. 90s and came back. So mm-hmm. it's okay to fail, but how do you respond to it, I think? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really good advice. I'm glad, I mean, even with my daughters, I think I'll, mm-hmm. I think that's important for me and I appreciate that advice, yeah. I told my second child, my second daughter, uh, years ago, we were walking along the trail talking and I said, I want you to do something wrong this week. And her eyes got big and she, cause she's my goody two shoes, right? She's the, the rule follower. And of course I didn't mean anything sinful, but I meant, I want you to do something that you are going to feel like you did wrong. Me, basically I wanted her to fail. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have a clue what that means. She's she at that time was so careful not to do anything that she might fail at because she didn't want to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if she actually did that week, but you know she began to push put herself out there in some areas and wasn't perfect at all of them. And that was wonderful because mm-hmm. then it got gave me a chance to say I love you, I accept you anyway. Now let's talk through that. How can you be better? But your your worth and your dignity and and all those things are not wrapped up in always getting it right. Another thing that comes to mind with my son, getting back to to men, is you know think about the uh, the responsibilities of manhood. We've done that series in the past we've got to be leading our sons in those things. So, you know, the, the first one ruling and subduing this earth, you got to give your boys areas of responsibility early on, whether it's cleaning the room, taking care of their toys, whatever, but there, they have to be entrusted with responsibilities. There have to be consequences for uh, doing it well and consequences for doing it poorly right? They get the reprimand, they get the discipline, whatever, when they do it poorly, and they get praise and, and rewards when they do it well. That's part of preparing them to be a man in this world. Uh, productivity, give them things to accomplish and praise them when they accomplish them. That's part of being a man. Uh, protection, all those things, wisdom, all the things that we talk about in the, in the seven core responsibilities. We have to know what we're trying to form men to be. It's not go live in the woods and you know, among the bears and, you know, it's not the wild at heart kind of stuff. I, there's some good stuff in that book, but by and large, I think that's an exaggeration and, and un, he takes things a little beyond what the scripture says at times, uh, but sense of responsibility, all those things we've talked about in the past and, and dads need to be the ones to lead these boys into that. Well, what, what greater feeling was there as a boy, especially like if my dad went away for work and my brother was in college and I was in high school, like, Hey, you're the man of the house. You're in charge. Like, that kind of made you feel good, right? And kind of you took that seriously. Now, really, you weren't, but it was like you knew what that meant, right? Like it was a it was a big deal. And I think, uh, or the line from my one of my favorite sports movies, The Sandlot. What does the mom say? Like, go out and play, get into trouble. Like basically, be a boy. And we don't mm-hmm. encourage boys to. Boys should be curious by nature. They should. Doesn't mean you don't want them to get in trouble, but they kind of need to because they kind of got to learn. And it's kind of we we shouldn't curb what God has put into each of us. We should celebrate the differences Mm -hmm. God has put in men and women and boys being more curious and more rambunctious. Mm -hmm. You know, in my house growing up, you don't throw balls in the house. Right. In our house, 
you throw balls when dad says it's okay to throw hop, throw balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes mom doesn't like it, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. But even there, you're learning context. You know, if we're playing catch with the football in the living room, I'm responsible as the head of the home. And if we break something, that's on me. Mm-hmm. Then I want to teach my son. Now, when I'm not around, you're not allowed to do this. And that helps them learn context, that kind of thing. I, I bring that up because you said they need to get in trouble. Yeah, we don't want them sinning, but so often we have these rules and, this, and maybe more so moms, may, you know, trying to keep the house in order and trying to keep their, I don't know, maybe right. it's dads with the yard, get off my lawn, whatever. <laughs> right. But we all we, we have these rules uh, that are not biblical rules or just, you know, preferences or whatever. And we can train these boys to never take risks and always be afraid of offending or whatever. And that's not good. They need to, they need to learn how to, they can only learn wisdom and good decision-making uh, and, and the context of when things are appropriate by pushing it a little bit and then being corrected. I mean, think about the Proverbs over and over and over and over again. The instruction is, my son, receive correction, receive rebuke, receive admonishment, receive instruction. All of that presupposes that's not his natural bent. He is bent to go push the envelope and everything. We need to allow that and then bring them back where they learn some maturity. Well, and and what um, better way we live in a culture that's so afraid of toxic max masculinity from a biblical standpoint, mm-hmm. my goodness, what a better way to show your son how to treat a woman than how you treat your spouse, their mother right. or their sisters, you know, um, right. with, with that respect good biblical patriarchy as we talk about will train men up well to respect mm-hmm. women to love their mother and that's way better than anything an effeminate culture can teach them yeah absolutely they learn all of that from us and they learn here are the circumstances to let all that testosterone flow and here are the situations where no no you are in protection mode you're in in even servant mode you're you're caring for those right that that all depends on context uh going to war you know it's it's on all of our minds right now with afghanistan Mm. that kind of thing if we don't raise up soldiers i'm thinking more of an american than christian here but as an american if we don't raise up soldiers who know how to fight well then everybody suffers. They can't protect us from our enemies as a nation. We need men who can fight well if they're going to be good soldiers. They also need to learn to protect women, to protect the, 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 those who are not soldiers. They need to learn how to rule themselves. And I'm, I'm going to be speaking at our men's retreat here in a few weeks. And uh, that's where I was going over the curriculum with uh, a guy in our staff. And that's what the things we're talking about is talking about men ruling ourselves. That, that's maybe priority one is, do I have control of myself? When is it the right time to fight? When is it time to, to remain calm and, and that kind of thing? And we got to start with boys when they're young. Yeah. And I think too, like just bringing back up the issue of uh, not fathers around, not being around, you know, again, the, the people scared of toxic masculinity, well, the reverse is just as bad because then it can lead to sadly predatory behavior and, and things mm-hmm. like that and things that we just want to try to avoid generally speaking, not just from a Christian standpoint, obviously we want that, but how important, um, you know, and we're not at all criticizing single mothers, like at all. I know that's like, you just, we just understand there are circumstances, you know, Bodhi was brought up by a single mom. You look what he went through and things like that, but we're not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about men who are home need to lead and lead well. And I think that comes back to your thing about marriage too, if we could all tie it in, why it's important for the husband to lead well in the marriage. 
because if they're not leading well there, they're not going to lead well, most likely as, as a father too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's that, that relationship started in most cases before the parenting relationship and they, mm-hmm. they need to do that there as well. I agree with what you're saying about the single moms and for anyone who might be listening, who's in that situation, that's not ideal. It's not the way it was designed, but God can make up the difference. And that's where you have to find other men for your boys uh, men that you can trust who will give them. It's not, it's not ideal. Uh, there's just no way around it, but it doesn't mean they are hopeless and helpless. Uh, they can be shown manhood by some good men in the church and, and that kind of thing. So uh, well, absolutely. It's crucial. And James, you know, caring for widows and orphans would most likely mean that very thing you're talking about right. there as well, which is where elders need to step up and, and mm-hmm. it also requires those people to come to them, go, Hey, he mm-hmm. needs some men in his life. What do you do? How do we do this? And um, and be willing to receive that too. I think some mm-hmm. people are, hey, I need help. And then people call and you don't take it. Well, that's a problem too. So, mm-hmm. um, well, I think this was a good episode. I feel like we were very compact. I was actually able to stay focused this time. We didn't <laughs> scramble too far. Um, Doug, acrosstocrown.org, uh, if people want more information on everything New Covenant theology-wise and the New Covenant School of Theology is available. It's up and running. Um, if people, did we bring it up last week? What's going on now? We did, yeah. yeah. We are uh, starting in our next class, Marriage and Family, which starts, uh, oh, I should know that date. Uh, <laughs> is I it think the end the, of August or first of September, I, I think? I think it's the uh, second Monday. Well, I can like, well, anyway, I think it's September 9th, maybe whatever that Monday is. Um, we'll, we'll have it for next show. Uh, we're going to start uh, opening up for online classes. You can take it for credit or you can audit. And uh, if, the first step in, if you're interested in this is go to newcovenantschooloftheology.org and click on apply. And there's a brief application there to fill out. That'll come to us. And then we will get back in touch with you. So click on apply at newcovenantschooloftheology.org. And let's uh, spend some time next week or the week after and, and unpack that more for folks that want more information. Great. And uh, they can also go like I said, cross crown and all that and um, get all the information on New Covenant Theology. And as always, what we want people to do, whether it's being a parent, husband, father, single man, child, if you're in Christ, what is it? Live intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things.